0: of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at Today's reading comes from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 16, verses 19 to 24. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Yes, so Jesus, we come this morning. Uh, eager to hear from you, eager to see in your word how we ought to walk in this life. Pray you fill us with your spirit. You give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team. Paul's final words in 1 Corinthians... Our final words in this letter are more than just parting greetings. It's more than just goodbyes. In the five verses that Cam read for us this morning, Paul is touching on, he's, he's referencing back to the big points, the big ideas he's wants to convey to this church in Corinth in this letter. In five verses he does that. And so as we conclude our time in 1 Corinthians this morning, we're in the Gospel of Mark beginning next week for seven weeks. As we conclude our time this morning, I want to give you, like a kid leaving a birthday party, a goodie bag, a goodie bag with three things, three things to take with you as we leave this letter. Ready? I want us to see this morning that each of us make up one church, that before each of us lies one choice, one choice, And lastly, that true life, that true grace to be this one church is found in the one Christ. The one Christ. So one church, one choice, one Christ. So first, one church. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you. You can grab one at the back. Take it. Keep it. It's our gift to you. I want to ask you to uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16 and look there with me. And you'll see, and you heard it this morning, didn't you? There's this repetition of this word greeting, right? Greeting, 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 greeting over and over and over again. And customary of Greek letters or or these Hellenistic letters of this time, Paul's letter begins with a greeting and it ends with a greeting. And so we read in verse 19, look there with me. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca Together with the church in their house, what do they do? They send you hearty greetings, literally big greetings, mega greetings, right? Many greetings in the Lord. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. And then Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And we'll get to that. Don't worry. Don't be freaked out. It's an excessive amount of greeting, isn't it? It's like trying to leave a family gathering. I don't know if you've done this before, and you're saying like goodbye to like 40 people, 40 different ways. Like, okay, now it's just time to leave. Except Paul's writing a letter, so there's no excuse here. Like He, he can be succinct. He can be precise. He, he's writing a, a letter. And so what's going on? Are, are we simply being given a window into first century customs, or is there something more happening here? And as you might suspect, I think there's something more happening here. Look at this with me. Paul, in his greeting, he's moving from the abstract and impersonal to the familial and the intimate. And so just trace this with me. The churches in Asia greet you. Actually, Aquila and Prisca and and their house church greets you. And really, we're family, so it's your brothers and sisters in Christ who greet you. And you know what? Strange as it sounds to us, greet each other with a kiss. Just do it. Do you see the movement? It moves from continent to kiss. From the unfamiliar to the familial. Paul, even in his simple farewell greetings, is reminding us, all of us, of something terribly profound about the church, something that he's been saying and we've been saying, hopefully you've heard it for the past two years, that despite our gifting and despite how much money we have and despite our ethnic background and despite our country of origin, we are, though many, one church, one body, one family, one people in Christ. And that sounds really nice, doesn't it? sounds nice. But, but in 1 Corinthians, and hopefully you've seen this, being one body, one church, is more than just a, a nice slogan. It's intended to have radical ramifications for us as a church as we live, right? We, we, we've seen this. And perhaps most clearly the, the first and most obvious ramification of us being one body, one church, is this. It's a warning against unnecessary Unnecessary division, divisiveness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul does not hold to a unity at any cost kind of theology. He's not like the person who is a peacemaker, and I'm kind of a peacemaker, that might surprise you, but I come in, I'm like, I just want us to get along. Let's just get along. That's not what Paul's doing here. It's not a unity at any cost kind of theology or philosophy. He knows. He knows that there are certain things worth dividing over. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord's Supper is being practiced in Corinth, and the rich people are having a feast, right? And it's a party, and the poor people are being left out. And so the Lord's Supper is becoming a place of division. And Paul says in verse 19, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, this proves the lovelessness of those who don't truly know Jesus. This must happen. This must take place. There must be factions among you, Paul says. But in 1 Corinthians, beyond this, it's clear that dividing, however, on the basis of a preference in teacher or preacher, right? Who's our favorite podcast to download? Dividing along class and socioeconomic lines, even dividing along lines of spiritual gifting, is evidence. Not that you've been gripped by the gospel, what God says about you, but that you're more interested in what the company you keep says about you, what your friend group says about you. So whenever a Christian looks to the the clubs that they're a part of, or or the neighborhood they live in, or, or the degrees they possess, or even the hobbies they enjoy, Whenever they look to these things as their primary badge of identity, we are inevitably, ultimately, eventually, opening the gates and inviting in divisiveness and factionalism. It must not be that way among you, Paul says. And so let's pause, and if you think you have nothing in common with the brother or sister across the aisle this morning the brother or sister who appears to be very different than you, they look different, they sound different, they're much older, they're much younger, they dress different, then you need to remember this morning, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, we who are many, and many we are, are one body. One body, one church. And interestingly, I think it's interesting, the strangest to us Part of the text this morning only serves to reinforce this. See, see, there was nothing like, there was nothing like the holy kiss in the Greco Roman world. That wasn't like a commonly accepted, broader sort of practice custom in the Roman world. It's unique, as far as we can tell, to to Christianity. Paul and the Christians of of the first century seem to have invented this holy kiss greeting. And now I just want to clarify here, I don't think you should do that today. That'd be weird, it's awkward in, in our culture, in our custom. Don't go kiss someone, that's inappropriate. I want to be very clear. But, but, in the first century world, in the first century world, this kiss acted as a physical sign of old divisive barriers being torn down. Do you see that? It's this physical sign of these barriers being being ripped down. And so one commentator says this, the personal warmth of the sign would, he says, have helped diminish other societal marks of status, power, ethnicity, say between slaves and free, or the wealthy and the poor. Reminding ourselves that we are one church, one body, not only helps guard against unnecessary divisiveness, also, also positively, It frees me and you to play our part. To fulfill our role, we could say. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 12? Nod your heads if you do. We spent a lot of time there, so if you don't, this is super discouraging right now. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 12? Yes. We talked about the body. We talked about, though, having different parts, having different roles, different functions. We we all need every part of the body doing its bit in in the work of Christ to to build up the church, to bring glory to the Lord. Remember that. Now, this picture does two things. First, as we've seen, it, it undercuts our divisive tendency to elevate certain giftings, certain personalities, over and above the rest. Every part of the body, every part of the body, again one more time, every part of the body is needed. In fact, Paul will say in verse, in verse 23 of chapter 12, that, that the parts that we think are unnecessary, the, that the hidden parts are in fact worthy of, of greater honor, he says, We've seen this. But, but secondly, positively, Paul is calling you and me, you and me, the church, the church, To play our part, do our role in building up one another. And what is so freeing to me, and I hope it's freeing to you, is that this means that my part looks different than your part. And your part looks different than my part. You don't need to be me. And praise be to God, I don't need to be you. Our best self, if we can borrow language from our culture, our best self is found not in a selfish quest for self-actualization, but actually in realizing, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that you are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. And realizing you're not your own, pour out. Pour out your life with the unique giftings, capacity, and abilities that the Lord has given you. So as we conclude our time in 1 Corinthians, two years, we did it, two years. As we conclude our time in 1 Corinthians, let me just say something that we've been saying for the past two years. We we need you. We need you. Again, we, we need you. For the body to be the body, we need every part playing its part. Yesterday I was at uh, our denominational meetings, which were fine. I'd rather be outside yesterday. You can, you can sympathize. But, but at one point, a gentleman got up and came to the mic. He's from a smaller church on the island and said, Hey, some of you guys are from big churches with, with big budgets. And I get that you don't need us. But he's like, you know what? I need you. I thought, what a 1 Corinthians thing to say. Do you think about that? As you make plans, as you scheme for the future, do you think that other people might need you? That the church needs you? It's a radical reorientation in our self-focused age, is it not? We need Folded hands to grab the plow. We need crossed legs to to get up and start running. Closed eyes to open and start looking. You you get the picture. So let me remind us of something. Christ City is here. Our church is here to make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. And and to be clear, that should be on the screen. To to be clear, the, the we here is not the staff of the church. It's not the community group leaders of the church, it's the, the we of the church. We, we exist, you exist, I exist. We're here to make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood, all according to the gifts and abilities and the resources the Lord has given us. And we can only do this, make disciples who in turn make other disciples, if we see ourselves as the one church called to this one, one purpose. The initial challenge that Paul brought to the church in Corinth remains before us today. Chapter 1, verse 10. Almost two years ago, we heard these words read. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. We are one church, ultimately faced with with one choice. Look at verse 22. Have your Bibles open. Look at verse 22 of our text today. And there the apostle writes, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Striking language, isn't it? Abrupt language. Bold offensive language, and yet entirely unsurprising if you've been tracking with us for two years. Seems to be Paul's M.O. in this letter. What's going on here? How do we understand this verse? In in the final moments of this letter, Paul is bringing to the fore once more the, the severity of what a loveless life leads to the result of a life concerned with upward mobility to the disregard and disadvantage of others. In no uncertain terms, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. He can say it another way. He's saying, if you don't love Jesus, you're not a part of his church. And that on its own is not terribly shocking or frightening if you believe the church just be a social club intended to make you feel nice for this brief life we have. Okay. But, as the very next sentence reminds us, the church's story is not limited to this life, to the here and the now, but looks ahead to the kingdom that is to come. See, Paul says, our Lord, come. The the Greek phrase is simply Maranatha. Our Lord, come. Come. Jesus is coming back. And, And when he comes, it will not once more be in weakness. It will not once more be for another crucifixion. But as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, it will be in power. So chapter 15, verse 24, it says, Then comes the end when he, who, the resurrected, reigning Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, listen, destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, this is Jesus, for King Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So so who are the accursed? The the accursed are those who remain Christ's enemy at Christ's coming. Not just people, but spiritual powers opposed to Jesus, even death itself. I I think it's so important that whenever we talk about judgment, you can kind of feel in the room, can't you? Whenever we talk about judgment, which the Bible does often, that we, that that I, make sure that we're talking about it the way the Bible does. See, the character is rife in our culture of the preacher who callously and and maliciously and even gleefully preaches fire and brimstone. The, The word accursed, anathema, anathema, is found a few other places in the New Testament, By the way, the most concentrated usage of anathema in the New Testament is in Galatians, referring to those who've been tasked with preaching the gospel but are subtracting from it, or adding to it, or not preaching it at all. And so it's important this morning that we don't skip past this for for my sake. But it's also found in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, specifically in chapter 9. And, And there Paul is speaking painfully of of the judgment that awaits his kinsmen, the, the Jewish people who have rejected the Messiah. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 2 to 3. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, anathema, right, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. If he could, Paul would be cursed, anathema, in the place of those who reject Jesus, that they might be saved. There's no delight. There's no joy. Only great sorrow, Paul says, and unceasing anguish. More importantly, it's not just Paul who does not delight in judgment, but the Lord himself does not delight in judgment. In Ezekiel 33, verse 11, we read, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but what does the Lord want? What is his desire? What is his heart? But the wicked turn from his way and live. And so, the Lord pleads through Ezekiel, his servant, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And, and here, here we see the very important difference between Paul and God, between us and God. Ready? Paul, Paul is powerless to become a curse in the place of the wicked. His expression of love, though significant, is only, as he himself says, a wish. I wish I could do this. But thanks be to God that where Paul's sacrifice and our sacrifice is insufficient, God makes a way. So just worship with me for a moment. Jesus, we we believe, on the cross became anathema, accursed, bearing in his body the sins of his people that we could become those who cry, Maranatha, our Lord come, without fear. Without fear. With joy. With anticipation. With eagerness. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus today, would you turn to him? Would you turn to Jesus? Would you trust in Jesus? Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And so the question, the million dollar question this morning is, what does it mean to love the Lord? And in 1 Corinthians, it's really simple. really, Really simple. Love is something we first receive. Love comes from outside of us. We don't have it. We need God to give it to us, to show it to us. But God's love, once received, is not meant to be kept a a secret or to ourselves. It must, it must, again, it must lead to a response of love-filled lives. And so really all Paul is doing in our chapter this morning is summarizing chapter 8, verse 3, where he says this. But if anyone loves God, listen, he is known by God. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. So the question is is simple this morning. Christ City, does love for God characterize your life? Does love for Jesus characterize your life? How do I know? Tell me more. Love for God is very simply seen in obedience to his word. For the Corinthians, this meant this. Submitting their bodily life, who they did and didn't have sex with, how and what they ate, even what they wore to the truth of God's word. For the Corinthians, this meant submitting their worship gatherings, right? What was appropriate and helpful, and what was harmful and distracting to the truth of God's word. It meant submitting their financial lives, you saw this two weeks ago, to the truth of God's word. What will it mean for you? Love for God is seen in obedience to his word. And if you're like, I don't like this, this sounds like Paul being mean, let me quote to you Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We have before us in in this one life, one choice, one choice. Will you love God or not? And if you will, then then keep his commandments. Then, Then obey him. Will you receive Jesus? Jesus who becomes anathema for you, not only that you might not fear his coming, but that you would eagerly anticipate it. Will you love God? Will you keep his commandments and in doing so love others? If all of this sounds overwhelming, if all of this sounds like too much, being the body, working towards unity, surrendering to God's love, showing God's love to others, and I want to take us to the final verse of 1 Corinthians and, and remind us, if you're feeling the weight of doing all this this morning, remind all of us, me, you, all of us, that, that you and I are not at the center of this story. That it does not depend at the end of the day on us. Look at verse 23 to 24. This is the one Christ. Our text ends. Our time in this book ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus Be with you. My love, Paul says, be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Grace. Jesus' grace. Jesus' grace is the star of 1 Corinthians. It's the hero. To a group of broken and divisive and messed up bickering people, God sends his grace, his unearned favor and blessing in the person of Jesus, in the work of Jesus. And before a, re- a rebuke or, or a correction crosses Paul's lips, in this letter he begins, verse 4 of chapter 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So just, just, just grab hold of this with me. This is so important. It was God's grace... That led God to choose, as Paul says in verse 27 of chapter 1, the the foolish in the world to shame the wise. What is weak in the world to shame the strong. It's God's grace that leads him to giving grace gifts for the building up of the church. That's chapter 3 and verses, chapters 12 to 14. It is grace. Grace getting into our bones. This is the antidote, the cure to what ails us today. It is grace that is the cure for divisiveness and disobedience in the church. It is grace that is the hammer that squashes our idols of power, our desire for for upward mobility. It is grace that does all this. And so I want to end. I want to end. I want to end our time in this letter by just showing you something. It was from from a pastor named John Piper that that I first saw what, what, what Paul was doing in his letters with reference to grace. More than that, though, Piper showed me that the way Paul speaks about grace coming to us differs from the beginning of Paul's letters and the end of his letters. He speaks about grace differently at the beginning of his letters and at the end of his letters. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul began with what? Grace to you. Right? Grace to you. But, but he ends his letters, Grace be with you. Or grace go with you. Could it be, and this is again what Piper says, that in Paul's introductions he knows that they are about to hear his word. The apostolic word. The authoritative word of God. And so Paul says, in and through the hearing of the word of God, Grace is coming to you. Grace is coming to you. This letter is the channel of God's grace to you. In fact, twice in Acts, the apostle's teaching was called the word of his grace. And could it be that in his conclusions, he wants Corinth and he wants us to know that even though the scroll is rolled up and the reader has sat down, that grace does not stay locked up with the scroll in the safe, that grace goes with you because Christ goes with you. So let me say this. Each Sunday, and in fact, every time you open your Bible, you and and we, we encounter God's grace. God's grace. We come to know more and more what it means to love him and love others from his word. And if you've been around the church for a while, you might have assumed this. This might be, yeah, I know that to you. But we need to remind ourselves this morning that, that historically speaking, it is unique to the Judeo-Christian tradition that God would reveal himself to his people the way the God of the Bible does. And so, for example, this week I was reading an ancient prayer. It's called A Prayer to Any God. And it's in Akkadian. Akkadian, if you don't know, is the language of ancient Assyria and Babylon. And this prayer goes like this. I want to read part of it to you. And as I do, hold in your mind the truth of of the God who reveals himself to us. Who has shown himself to us in Christ Jesus. and, And what this prayer talks about. And the difference therein. Listen to this. The ancient Akkadians would pray like this. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. So where do we start with an angry God? May may my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God, listen, I do not know, be reconciled. Or may the goddess, I do not know, be reconciled. Again, we're just kind of guessing here, hedging our bets. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. It continues. I do not know what wrong I have done. I don't know. Because you haven't told me. And I don't know what sin I've committed. Again, you haven't told me. And, and I don't know what abomination I have perpetrated. Again, because you haven't told me. I don't know what taboo I have violated. We assume that God will reveal himself to us. But, but that's unique to our book. That's unique to Jesus. That's unique to our, our faith. See, God's grace is found Not only in him speaking to us and revealing himself to us. But behind that curtain, we discover not not an angry-hearted God, but one full of love, compassion, and grace. Grace that goes with us. That goes with us. So God not only gives us the grace of his word, he gives us the grace to obey it and to, to obey him. And so imagine with me this. Paul has just finished his letter and, and while somebody else probably wrote most of it, this last part, he, he's grabbed the pen and he's writing it himself. And, and he puts the, the pen down or, or the stylus down and, and he folds up the parchment and, and he sits back. And, and I don't know what Paul was thinking. None of us know what Paul was thinking. But perhaps, perhaps he has this fleeting thought Is this going to do anything? Is this going to change anything? Am I just spinning my tires with these people? They seem to be pretty messed up. Is this going to do anything? Is my work worthwhile? I'm sure some of us can relate to this. We pour hours into that job that we feel God is calling us to do. We pour hours into a person God is calling us to be with. We give our time and our money and our energy to a group of people with the hope that God will take it with the hope that God will use it, but we just don't know, do we? I, I take so much comfort, and you should take so much comfort knowing that the ending of 1 Corinthians reminds us that ultimately, if, if anything of substance, anything of internal importance is to happen in our lives and in our neighborhood, it will be because God graciously did it. God took our works, God took our energies, God took our labors, and poured out his grace upon them and us to accomplish his will. If Corinth is to be changed, if we are to be changed, it will be because God's grace came to us and God's grace goes with us. In a hostile world, God's grace goes with us. As we leave today wondering if we'll ever overcome those lingering habitual sins, God's grace goes with us. As we prepare to be reconciled to those we've hurt or those who've hurt us, God's grace goes with us. As Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, his grace is enough for us. Amen? Let's respond together. Let's pray, Father, I, I ask that you would you would meet us with your grace. Grace to endure. Grace to be patient. Grace to see fruit and lives changed and the city impacted. Grace to get through the, the difficulty of, of today maybe this past season. We, we, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. We thank you that your power is made perfect in weakness. And we ask, Lord, that you'd fill us with your spirit. Lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.